take your Bibles this morning and open them to the book of, what book do you want to talk about? What? People get what you deserve, you know that. All right, let's go to Ezra. At least that's where I'm going to go. And until Andy shuts me off, I have the microphone. So I want to talk to you this morning about the king's work. And uh, they, they taught me many years ago in Bible school, I don't know if it's changed, that you should always have a text for your title. Um, So here's my text. It says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom. And he also put it in in writing, which is an interesting concept. Um, if If it isn't in writing, it probably didn't happen. Now, Second Chronicles chapter 36 in verse 22 says this. Now the first year, king of Cyrus, or excuse me, the first year Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says the king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kings of the earth, and he's charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. So we have parallel passages in Second Chronicles and the first of Ezra, and that's there for a reason. And so firstly, we'll talk about the king's work. We're going to look at different kings as we read through the book of Ezra. Hopefully you've got a Bible that helps you sort out their names. Sometimes these kings go by two names, so it's, it, it may look like they're, you know, they say we're going to write a letter to so-and-so, and then it says they wrote a letter to another guy, same guy. So they just use different names. Uh, but there's two or three kings that are mentioned. And yet all of this was being done by God. The Lord stirred his spirit so that the word that God had given to the prophet Jeremiah would be fulfilled. It wasn't, and we're going to talk about some of the politics involved in it, but it wasn't, it wasn't just some arbitrary thing. And we, we, I read to you that kind of the proclamation, I didn't read it, it's kind of longer here in Ezra, um, that the king said, uh, you know, I've got everything, but I want to build a temple. God wants me to build, build him a temple. So, all you people who want to go, pick up and go. This is the first um, return of the exiles after they have been in captivity for 70 years. And uh, there's different ways to figure that 70 years. I'm not going to try to get involved in that. I read it. It gave me a headache. Uh, <clears throat> let me just... Uh, but two ways to figure it. There's 70 years either way. So... Um, here they are returned. Now, interestingly enough, in the, in the uh, uh, the ancient Jews used to have Ezra and 
um, Nehemiah as one book, not two separate books. It's very possible that they have the same author. It's also very possible that the author is the person that we referred to earlier as the chronicler who wrote First and Second Chronicles. Uh, Ezra did not write the book of Ezra, of Ezra. At least he didn't write all of it. Um, there, actually, he doesn't come in till the book is on, till the book is over. Almost over. We'll talk about that here in just a just a little bit. Um, so, the the events in this book, in the book of Ezra, cover about a hundred years from the beginning to the end. And Ezra actually comes in, and we know this pretty much uh, because of there are very precise dates given about when the king told Ezra to go. We know when they were when Cyrus wrote his decree that they could return. We know when Ezra was told to go. So, fifty-seven years after Ezra starts, Ezra, the priest, returns to Jerusalem to give the people basically Bible teaching. And uh, so not this, this entire book was not within the span of, of Ezra's ministry. And I already read this, that Ezra begins where Second Chronicles ends. And uh, <clears throat> so that's, a, that's, our, that's our starting point. So you got a little bit of a background here. Um, let's see. Let me just maybe put this in a little context. The book of Daniel happened during the exile, and so it happened before this. We haven't read Daniel yet. Daniel's coming up. But as far as chronology is concerned, it happened before the return. Um, <clears throat> Nehemiah comes after, and Esther is probably a... Con- Mordecai, let me use that word. Mordecai was probably a contemporary of Ezra, only Mordecai didn't return to Jerusalem. So when you see, when you see if you read this carefully, that on, at the very beginning there's a group who return um, under Zerubbabel and under the fellow who was the governor, and they return and they begin, they begin to rebuild. Fifty-seven years later, there's another proclamation given, and there's more f- finance given, and another group return, and they add to the strength that are there. And probably somewhere in that line, we get that we get this, uh, or somewhere in that string in there. Probably the latter half of this book, we have the story of Esther. Mordecai is a Jew who did not return, and if you remember the story of Esther. Um, the, the big story of Esther is that she saves all of the Jews that are scattered throughout all of the Persian Empire by going and standing before the king. And it's this, that's the empire that we're dealing with here. And some of you may have Bible maps and you can go and you can see um, where that was. The, the, <clears throat> um, the Medes and the Persians, the Medes, uh, Darius who was a Mede and then Cyrus the Persian. Uh, their empire was was huge, and um, as these empires 
basically succeeded one another. They began, they got larger. We're going to see, uh, when we get to the book of Daniel, we'll look at this in, in more detail. But, but the, the, the Greeks under Alexander, uh, the Macedonians, when they conquered, they even took more, took more area. Now, note this decree to return. So, <clears throat> uh, Scripture very specifically says that the Lord stirred him up. So, what's that mean? You know, have you ever stopped to think, what's that mean? you ever been stirred up by God? Have you ever done something that God wanted you to do, only you didn't know that God wanted you to do it, but you did it, and then later on you saw that it was God who was making you do that? Or maybe you did something and you realized later that all of the circumstances at the time pushed you toward that thing and maybe you didn't want to do it. I don't know, maybe you were unwilling, maybe you didn't even know anything was happening. But at the end you said, thank God for what you did and you see that God is sovereign. So I want us just to think past, and I know I talk about this a lot and you know, forgive me, but think past the little kid's Bible stories here. Yes, God did stir him. But, but what was going on? So I, I, wrote down, I wrote down three or four things. Number one, there may have been some influence upon him uh, because he had a favorable relationship with the Jews. We know that Daniel did. Daniel had great favor with his, with his captives. And uh, I, I'm not going to have time to read all of this, but if, if, when you read Ezra's prayer... And Ezra has two great prayers in here where he just pours out his heart before God and he says, he says to God, he says, when he's repenting for the, the immorality of the people, he says, God, we're here, but we're still slaves. You know, and then he says, we don't even deserve to be here. And, and so he repents before God. So, um, maybe there was some influence, uh, for some reason or another, the, the king felt some favor to the Jews. Maybe it was a relationship. The second thing I wrote down was maybe there was a genuine turning to God by Cyrus. Uh, maybe he had a genuine experience with the Lord, where the Lord says, yeah, I want you to do this. And he knew it was the Lord talking to him, and so on and so forth. But I want you to also be aware that it was pretty common in those days in order to keep peace to let the people do what the people wanted to do. It was easier to maintain the people if they kept a certain amount of their culture. It all depended on the, uh, uh, what, what I want to say, the political disposition of the dictator. You know, we, we, we call him an emperor or a king, but it all depended on the political, the political disposition of, whether he, of, the, of that person, whether he believed it was best to quash all of that and, and make everybody, uh, one, have a homogenous group all across, or whether he was going to let them, going to have toler- toleration and let them do what they want to do as long as they didn't break laws. So, but we don't know. But it was common for him to let them, let them be what they wanted to be. It's also possible, third thing I wrote down, is he needed an organized group of people, a nation, to buffer and protect his that part of his kingdom, and so he said. To, he may have said to himself, "It's better that I have a bunch of Jews down there in Jerusalem, down there in that path between me and the rest of Egypt, 
the rest of Africa. Maybe it's better that I have an organized group of people there who, who, are, who have allegiance to me because I'm letting them do what they want to do. And you'll notice if you read that, he, he gives them money, he gives them time, he gives them back the implements of their, of their, uh, for their worship, which basically were gold and silver. So he's, he's favorable with them. It's also possible that it was a combination of all of the above. That all of these things were happening. He felt favorable to the Jews. Maybe the Lord, maybe he did sense the Lord turning to him. Maybe he did look and say, I need a buffer down there on my border. I'm going to let these people do it. Hmm. Doesn't really matter in the long run, but I want you to think past just what it says. Because normally we'll read that and we'll say, well, he's just, he's just doing what God told him to do. And it's very possible that God, it doesn't say that God spoke to him and he said, yes, Lord. It says God stirred him. And uh, <laughs> uh, I've been stirred by bees <laughs> to change locations rapidly. How many know what I'm talking about? I've been stirred to pull off the side of the road when my engine quit. And so there's all, there are all kinds of things going on. So think, think beyond that and kind of think what's going on. In the end, God did it. Whether he spoke to him directly and said, I want you to do this, and he says, yes, Lord, that's what I'm going to do, or whether there was all kinds of political or economic reasons for him to doing it, it was God who did it, and it was God who timed when it would be done. So in chapter 1, and we'll kind of go through some of these chapters here, in chapter 1, um, we see the decree, and we, uh, we, we, we see the people start to go back. Zerubbabel is one of their leaders, and they also have another fellow by the name of Shezbazar, the prince. It says in verse 8, Cyrus, king of Persia, brought, out, uh, brought those out in charge of the... Uh, of oh, that guy, I can't think of his name. Mithradeth, the treasurer, who counted them out to Shezbazar, the prince of Judah. You know, where are the nice names? <laughs> They go to these other countries and they get these strange names. The Prince of Judah. And then it it talks about all the gold and everything that they gave him. So here's the decree, here's the preparation that's going to happen. In chapter 2, we see that there is a roster of returnees. And and that's how it begins. These were the people of the province who came up out of captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. And then it, it begins to list them. And it, it lists them by families and it lists them by, um, by jobs in some instances. Uh, it says in verse 64, the whole assembly together was 42,360 people besides their servants. Wow. So there were priests and Levites and singers and all sorts of people who went back, including their servants. Now... Um, Somebody brought this up a few weeks ago as, as they were reading one of the prophets who was prophesying prior to the destruction of Jerusalem and prior to the exile. So I know I'm going back and forth here. I hope you, you can follow me. Forgive me if I don't make it clear. 
So you, you get Isaiah and Jeremiah prophesying and saying, guys, and back, basically they both did. They said, repent or God's going to bring judgment. And then they said, too late. God's going to bring judgment. And so the prophet said, when you are taken captive, this is what he said, you, you live in the cities and you pray um, for the sustainment and the benefit of that community. You be there and you live there and you get involved and you be a blessing there where you are. Now God knew they were only going to be there seven, 70 years. So you, you see while they were there, they grew, they prospered, they, they gained servants, slaves in some instances perhaps. And they were able to bring all of that back with them when they came. So... Um, in chapter 3, we see that they get there and they begin to rebuild the altar and begin sacrifices and feasts. It says, When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, with his fellow priests and with Zerubbabel, the son of Shutiel, and with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on. As it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God, they set an altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the people of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening, and they kept the Feast of Booths, as it is written, and they offered daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required. And after the regular burnt offerings and the offerings at the new moon and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord and the offerings everyone who made free will, who made free will offering to the Lord, from the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt, burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. And I'll just read this. So they gave money to the masons and carpenters and food to drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrrhenians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to see a job according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. And they began to rebuild the temple. So the first thing they did was they gathered together, they rebuilt the altar so they could begin offering sacrifices, and apparently they did it so that the first thing they could do was do the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles, which was what the Israelites who were in Israel did as a reminder that they lived in tents. By the way, they still do it. If you go there today, during the time of the Feast of Tabernacles, there are a bunch of folks who pitch tents, and they live in them. And it's a reminder that while they were those that generation in the wilderness, they lived in tents. They didn't have houses. They lived in tents. So they begin to all they begin to uh, um, um, begin to worship. Then they begin to rebuild the temple. I'm not going to take time to to read all of that. Um, they laid the foundation, and there's things to be said in chapter four. And in chapters 4 through 6, they deal with opposition. So I'll just read parts of this. It says, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. 
And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Ezarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. Uh, by the way, is that true? No, it's not true. And one of the main reasons you can know it's not true is because they had no altar. They may have thought it was true, but it was not true. And if you remember back your history, the northern ten tribes, and that's kind of what they're talking about there, um, they were part of the northern ten tribes of the northern area who got taken by the king of Assyria. And if you remember, the northern ten tribes had two places where you could worship because he wouldn't let them go to Jerusalem to do it. So they were, they were involved in some sort of false worship, but they said, we worship you. And Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel said to them, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. So the moment... Now... I'm going to say some things. Some of them I'm going to make application to. Some of the application you have to make. The moment they began to build, they received opposition. The culture around them was willing to let them worship as long as their worship didn't demand anything of permanence other than an altar. Folks, we have that same thing I told you I wasn't going to make the application here I'm making it All right, we have that same thing going on today do what you want in your little church groups folks but stay out of the public realm don't do stuff out here and uh, there's all kinds of things we're going to talk more about this opposition in just a minute but I wanted you to see that that was the trigger for this whole thing they began to build something and what uh, uh, of course when you begin to build something you know, the building inspector sees it and he comes by and says do you have a permit and that's kind of exactly what happened you're going to see this they came, came by and said do you have a permit to do this and they said well yeah the king gave us a permit and then they they began to say well we're not sure your permit's valid and then another king came on the scene and he changed stuff took them to the third king before they could get back to business again I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself here um I want to skip ahead to chapter 9. It's toward the end. I hope you read this far. Ezra is now here. Uh, and actually, this is the first thing we read about Ezra doing when he gets back almost 60, 60 years from what we just read. Ezra shows up. And... Um, he has to deal with the problem. Everybody remember what the problem was? I, I don't hear very well anymore. Intermarriage. All right. They were marrying the people of the land who were not Jews. Um, It says in chapter 9, After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. 
from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the land. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. Wow. That's a ringing indictment, isn't it? Who's been the worst? The leaders have been worse. And then Ezra begins to pray. He, he says, um, skip down to verse 6, verse 7. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given to the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. And he pours out his heart before God. And I've mentioned earlier, he says we are slaves. He says that down in verse 9. He, he, he goes on to quote to God what God says. Verse 12, Therefore do not give your daughters to, to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, prosperity that you may be strong and eat the food of the land and live in it for an inheritance to your children forever. He goes on in verse 14, Shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Verse, chapter 10, verse 1, While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men and women gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. So I want I want to talk to you. Um, I'm not sure exactly how to communicate all of this. I pray God gives me grace and that maybe you'll hear what God wants you to hear and maybe not what I say. Um, I, I looked at this and I, I, I did some other kind of reference checking. And the emphasis in Scripture is never that women shouldn't marry men who are not in the covenant. The emphasis is always, and the command is always, to the men not to marry women who are not in the covenant. And by covenant, I mean believers. In this instance, Jewish folks. How many are with me here so far? Don't marry someone who's not Jump, Don't marry one of those foreigners. Say, well, what's that got to do with us? Well, in the New Testament, it says, don't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. It, is, it appears to be a given from God that some of the people understood that a man who marries an unbeliever is guilty, number one, because God says don't do it, and number two, the reason God says don't do it because it will eventually, he will eventually abandon God and then his children will follow in his stead. And we've got an example of that in Solomon, don't we? As a matter of fact, Scripture very plainly reinforces the fact that says Solomon married all these women and his heart became um, distracted from God. Well, what, why are you bringing all this up, preacher? Well, number one, parents, we need to teach our sons what it is they should seek in a wife. 
we need to teach our daughters what it is they should seek in a husband. And one of the first things they should seek in a husband, if they're a believer, is whether or not their husband is completely committed to the Word of God. There are lots of gray areas in Scripture, folks. There are things that I don't understand. Elizabeth and I were having a conversation out here before. What about this? What about things I don't understand? Uh, But, you know, there's more things that we do understand than there are gray areas. Say, well, should should you... not marry someone who's questioning things? No, 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 no. I mean, anyone who's not questioning <clears throat> either is mindless or dead. Okay? And I don't suggest you marry someone who's mindless or dead. But you have to know in that questioning that when that person questioning, and this time, at this point I'm talking about a potential husband, when that person questioning all, at some point understands that's God's will, then that settles it. The questioning is over whether we like it or not. That's what God wants. That's what we're going to do. So why is that important? Because it was obvious that God said, don't you marry these women from outside the faith. And yet they were doing it. So it was an obvious violation of God's will, regardless of the consequences down here. That God gives them consequences. God tells them this is a bad thing that will happen to you. But regardless of that, whether he gave them the consequences or not, he says, don't do it, don't do it. Does that make sense? Sometimes we want to, you know, we say, well, I'm going to jump off the building. And and someone says, well, don't jump off the building. And you say, why? Well, if, you know, if they need a big explanation, give them the big explanation. But it's... The fact of the matter is, if, if God says something and we should obey it, whether or not we understand the ramifications of that obedience or disobedience, we should do it. We live side by side with an ungodly culture, just as these people did. I didn't take time to read in my notes, and maybe we'll get into it as we get into Nehemiah. There were some great things in in the, in the notes about Ezra and what they went back to. And I, I can't get into all that this morning. and Maybe we'll talk about it later. But they, they, lived in, they went back to a place that, that had, had had no witness for 70 years for the most part. There'd been no altar. There'd been no sacrifices. There'd been no one there lifting up praise and shouting to Jehovah and maybe reading the Psalms or doing any of that. They, 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 had no, they, they were in a foreign culture trying to maintain their identity and there are so many parallels to today. And we rub shoulders with that culture all over the place. And it's very easy for us to get uh, comfortable with, with rubbing shoulders. And it's, it's not always bad. Please don't, don't misunderstand that. We're to be in the world, but what? Not of it. So I want to say to you, it's not always bad. But I can also say to you, it will always, at some point or another, cause conflict. There will be conflict and tension with this culture that we live in and God's wonderful commands. 
There will always be. Then the New Testament goes into great detail about if we love our life, we'll lose it. And if we love the world, the love of God isn't in us. I, I, I hope that's self-evident. And I looked at this, uh, I, I thought about it, and I thought, man, men are so, it's so important that men realize, and they say, that you're not supposed to marry, you're, you've got to be careful of that culture, and you're not supposed to let your sons marry into that culture. And then I thought, why doesn't it say that to women? Well, one of the, one of the reasons is, is because men made the decisions about all that stuff. But how much harder is it when the woman is rubbing shoulders with the culture and begins to act like the culture? Say, that doesn't happen in the New Testament. Yes, it does. That's why Peter said, Let, here's the adorning you ought to have. I mean, you're with me here. Do you remember that passage? Ladies, how important you are. Teaching your kids. If you've got children, if you're married, to, in, to encourage your children and your husband to serve God. Men, how distrustful of self you must be. Women too, but the emphasis here is on men. To trust God and God alone. Alright, now I want to go back to chapter 4. I'm going to read to you a few verses. My time's up. <laughs> Who makes these clocks anyway? Right, so. Ezra chapter 4, verse 4. I'm just going to read to you like three verses here. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Asherus, or Artaxerxes, uh, Artaxerxes, excuse me, and in the reign of Asherus, at the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And then verse 7 continues that narrative and, they, and I'm not going to go through all of the history of all of that. I, wanted to, I want you to focus on four things. Number one, they had discouragement. The culture around about them discouraged them from doing what God wanted them to do. Number two, they made them fearful. Number three, there was an unjust legal system. They bribed, so what it says, they bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. And then they wrote lies to the king who basically stopped their progress. That's the narrative that's in the next couple chapters. And then the fourth thing is they brought accusations against them. All right. Now, God wanted this thing built. 
I'm going to circle back here a little bit. God wanted this thing built. Say, well, you know, know, it's all history. It's all interesting. It's all cool like that. Well, all right. But had they not returned, where would Jesus have gone to? They returned. They rebuilt their culture. They rebuilt the temple. They rebuilt it again. They they, They rebuilt their nation, so to speak. And although the empires changed, they were still there. And a few years before what we call the common era or the birth of Christ. And it, interesting, Jesus was probably born a few years before he was born. Uh, say, what? Yeah, well, our dating is kind of confused. So Jesus was probably born anywhere between 3 and 6 B.C. Um, Say, how do you do that? Well, he's, he can do anything he wants, but it basically wasn't anything he did, it's just that we don't count very well. So, um, which means, by the way, he died before 33 AD. Okay? I knew some of you were doing that math, so I just thought I'd throw that out there. If these people hadn't returned after the seven years as the prophet prophesied and as the king proclaimed, if they hadn't returned, where would Jesus have come to? God's got a great big purpose involved in all of this. And these battles that they fought were part of that purpose. There were things that were going on in their day-by-day lives that were little parts of the bigger picture of what God was trying to do. So they brought discouragement, fear. They had an unjust legal system, and then they brought accusations. And we don't, do, do we not face all of these things today in one form or another? And folks, I can assure you that it's only going to get worse. Well, it may get better for a little bit, but the cycle is going to continue. And, and usually these cycles go like this. You know, you study history, you'll know all of this. These cycles go like this. It, it gets better, and then it gets worse, and then it gets better. But the better is not as high as the better used to be, and the worse is worse than the, than the worse used to be. And then it gets a little bit better again, but that better is not as good as this better. How many of you are kind of following that weird little diagram there? So it is, even though there's ups and downs, it is, it, it is a continual declension. It's declining. So let me just ask you to think about some things. Where will you find encouragement? When the culture is against you and brings accusations and, and fear... Where will, you find, where will you find courage? Where, 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 where will you go to bolster your courage? Turn on late night? I don't think so. You may not be able to turn on anything. Can I just throw something out here at you? Everyone should this week, if you haven't already, go to Walmart and buy an atlas and keep it in your car. And learn to read it. So I don't know. How to, I don't need to read a map. I got my phone. You got your phone until it's shut off, or you run out of battery, or both. Some of you are out of battery right now, probably. That's... So what, what, what will we do? What will we do when the legal system attacks us or targets us? Did you know that this past week a pro-life activist was arrested 
on federal charges by the FBI. They did an early morning raid at his house, apparently because he pushed someone who was getting in the face of his child while this guy was trying to do sidewalk counseling. Someone got in the face and was confrontational, was nasty to his kid, and he pushed the guy away. The guy called the police. The police investigated it all. No harm, no foul. You guys keep apart that kind of business and, and let the matter drop. Someone reported it to the FBI, and since abortion clinics are protected by federal law, by the way, do you know there's no such thing in the Constitution as federal law? Federal law enforcement is not in our I'm, I'm off target. Let me come back to this. <laughs> Someone reported to the FBI, so the FBI came and arrested him. Well, I don't like hearing all that stuff. That's kind of scary. Well, that's one here too. Fear. Discouragement. Fear. Pressure, accusations. You know, we live in, in, in an accusatory age. That's part of the whole me thing, isn't it? That you can accuse people, and because you accuse them, your accusation bears more weight than what they say. So, believers can and will be accused for standing for righteousness. Secondly, along the same line, and this is this is nothing new. This has happened in history. It's happened multiple. It's happened repeatedly down through history. If you can't find anything that that they're doing that's that's wrong, you make up something, and you lie about people, and you make accusation based on the lie. That's why our system was written so that you're innocent until what? Proven guilty. But I don't know if you noticed, but that's being flipped. So whenever anybody says, well, you prove your innocence, they've got it backwards. Don't fall, for, don't fall for it. So let me ask these questions. Where are we going to find encouragement? Who's going to bolster our courage? What are we going to do when, what are we going to do if and when we're targeted by the legal system or accused justly or unjustly? We may be accused of doing things that were perfectly okay to do, but it doesn't fit the culture anymore. And then, of course, there can be lies that are brought against us. Hebrews chapter 12, and I'll, I'll close here with these couple verses. Verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which, which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, that's an interesting phrase. We, we skim over it. Think about him who suffered at the hands of sinners 
so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So take encouragement from that crowd of witnesses. Take encouragement from the fact that you haven't suffered as Jesus has suffered, and although He did nothing wrong. Someone may accuse, make false accusation against us, and and their their accusation may be false, may be false, and we may be found guilty on a lie. But down in our hearts, we know before God, we're guilty of something. Hebrews chapter ten, verse nineteen. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful." And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as a habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Because you have this confidence, you encourage one another. So, well, you know, what are we doing? Where are we going to find encouragement? Where are we going to find courage? What are we going to do in the legal system? What are we going to do when we're accused? We're going to need one another. I'm not sure what that would look like if we couldn't gather together. But I think the Holy Spirit is faithful and will show us what to do. You say, Preacher, why are you bringing to us all this negative stuff? Well, it's a good idea not to jump off the building. Because if you jump off the building, something bad may happen. And uh, I've got a feeling that our culture is running towards a precipice. Say, well, what's going to happen? Well, I I don't know what's going to happen. I do encourage you, though, if you haven't yet, go and look at the videos we posted, Don't Take the Bait. I don't know if you're aware of this, but there have already been confrontations between local law enforcement and federal law enforcement in some of our communities. So does that have anything to do with Christians? Not, no, not necessarily. Not yet. Thank God for that. Let's also take advantage of our opportunities. And work while it's still light, because when the dark comes, it will be hard to work. A very good, wise fellow said that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your goodness. We thank you that you give us your wonderful book. I pray you give us wisdom as we read Ezra, and then as we read Nehemiah read the struggles that these people went through in order to accomplish what you would have them accomplish. I pray that we'd we'd gain courage and confidence as we read how you move the hearts and minds of kings. Maybe they didn't even know you were moving their hearts and minds, but you did. And we see that over and over. Lord, 
I don't like to be negative. But I want to be a faithful watchman. I pray you'll help us to be wise to the age we live in. And, and to seek you as our resource as we face today's problems and tomorrow's difficulties. Knowing that in the end, Lord, it's your work, the King's work, the King of Kings' work. And you never fail. I pray these things in Jesus' name.